Thank you very much for that kind introduction. I mean, half of these things, good for legend management to have these um, things about dancing and Japanese dance troops and so on. They were put half in jest by my wife on my uh, website and then end up in places like Wikipedia, which is very dangerous. Um, but it was very kind of you. Um, it's a great honor to be invited and to be here. Um, I feel in a way that uh, giving a lecture at Oxford is uh, a special honor, a bit like having one's a, a book published in French in Paris. It has something to do with the name, um, the reputation, and so on. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful. The other reason I'm honored and grateful to be here at uh, this particular college is because, like uh, perhaps many of us here, um, I've, I'm a long time and keen Berliner, um, not the capital of Germany, of course. Um, but now to war. Um, wars have many unintended consequences. Liberation for some, and sometimes for many, can be one of them. And of course, liberation is the stated aim of many wars. Wars of national liberation, independence from empires, wars against tyrannies, uh, and so on. The mythology of nation-states is often founded on such wars. It's a common idea that collective cohesiveness is helped when its foundations are soaked in blood. Martyrdom is the basis of much religious, ethnic, and national feeling. This can grow stronger with time, whereas the real victims of Nazi persecution, for example, often kept a discreet silence about their horrifying experiences. The children and grandchildren forged a kind of identity out of the Holocaust, often faute de mieux, mieux being a shared culture or religion which has been lost. You find this in America, I think, often where uh, Jewish identity uh, gradually got watered down to a shared uh, amusement at Seinfeld episodes and uh, Woody Allen films, and then there's very, really very little left, and uh, share, a, a history of shared suffering or martyrdom is often the most emotive uh, way to give people a, a sense of collective identity, and um, uh, I don't see this as a form of liberation. Not everyone agrees. Identity politics, which first reared its head in the U.S., is seen by some as a sign of emancipation. Minorities that used to keep their heads down by hiding in anonymity now proudly declare themselves. The claim to public acknowledgement of collective suffering in the past is a major part of such declarations. Hence, too, the unseemly rivalry between minorities for the acknowledgement of their martyrdom. If the Jews can have yet another Holocaust museum, then why not the African Americans, or the Native Americans, or the Armenians, or the Chinese, and so on and so on in the Olympics of suffering. Uh, I can remember, for example, uh, the case of a, a not very good book uh, on the Nanking Massacre, um, written by uh, somebody called Iris Chang, uh, a bestseller too. Um, and uh, it was written very much with this particular purpose in mind. It was written to um, stake a claim for, the, as, as it were, the Chinese community in the United States to their own, um, as she put it, forgotten Holocaust. And um, on one occasion when she gave a lecture on the subject um, at a Barnes & Noble store in Los Angeles, uh, I, I wasn't there, I read about it, but she was apparently approached by uh, a, ch a Chinese-looking woman after the lecture who, came, who said to her, 
listen, with tears in her eyes, your lecture made me feel so proud to be a Chinese-American. And this is what I mean by a less than a healthy collective identity, I think. And, and martyrdom, I think, is also claimed for political reasons often uh, where it's really not appropriate. And you see this in uh, official, uh, a lot of official Israeli government propaganda, at least since the 1960s, uh, where um, it's not uh, six million Jews who fell victim to the Holocaust, who were murdered, but it's, as it were, six million Israelis, which um, is by no means the same thing, but because it, it suggests that somehow these people were murdered for a, a higher cause, for a, for a reason, where, of course, part of the horror of the of that of the Holocaust is that people were killed without any reason at all. Um, things have changed since the 1960s, but my primary history education was still based on national myths of liberation. The curriculum had not changed significantly since my grandfather went to school at the end of the 19th century. I was taught the heroic view of history, of brave resistance against the Catholic tyranny of Philip II, of Admiral Tromp with a broomstick in his mast, sweeping the arrogant Royal Navy from the North Sea, the defiance of the French occupation under Louis Napoleon, and last but by no means least, the resistance against Germans in World War II. Much was left unsaid, or at least underexposed, in this view of history. The fight against the Spanish king uh, was a Protestant rebellion, perhaps more than a national one. Catholics have a less than straightforward attitude to 16th century Dutch heroism, which could cause problems in, in predominantly Catholic uh, areas in the South, um, where uh, it was difficult for teachers to take part in this um, national propaganda. The Anglo-Dutch wars were more about trade uh, than about freedom. The French occupation in what was called the Batavian Republic in 1795 had strong support from so-called Dutch patriots, with a capital P. And Louis Napoleon was an enlightened and humane ruler who gave Holland its first constitution. Finally, only a small number of people had actively engaged in resistance against the German occupation. Most people simply tried to keep their noses clean, the usual behavior of populations compelled to live under brutal regimes. But the heroic myth of a nation that was always battling for its freedom, is an important part of the Dutch identity. It's the way people like to regard themselves. The myth contains a strong element of Protestant self-righteousness, the sense of a nation that is not just dedicated to freedom, but one that is always morally right, the Mount of Zion in a sea of wickedness. The way that life under German occupation is remembered as a clean division between resistance and collaboration or as the Dutch call it, goed and fout, or good and wrong, literally. Wrong, or fout, means incorrect, both in the literal and in the moral sense. We knew as children, for example, this is no longer true, obviously, uh, uh, today, but as children we knew exactly where uh, or where not uh, to buy sweets and which tobacconist uh, we would not set foot in because that particular woman who rang that, rang that particular store um, had had a relationship with a German soldier, for example. Um, and we were very morally self-righteous about it. Now, this attitude is not unique to Holland. The mythology of the United States, I, I would say, is quite similar. There, too, Protestantism has much to do 
with a national penchant for self-righteousness. I'm not saying all this to make propaganda for the Catholics, by the way, but by, more by way of explanation um, of the country I grew up in. But at least in the U.S., the 4th of July, commemorating the Declaration of Independence, points to a real achievement. Americans liberated themselves from British rule. Likewise, the 14th of July in France celebrates an act of liberation. The revolution was followed by terror and violence, and the idea of the will of the people may have served to justify other forms of tyranny, but the founding of the French Republic, like the founding of the United States, created a modern notion of equal citizenship which is worth celebrating. The Dutch celebrate their national identity on the 5th of May, when World War II was officially over in the Netherlands. In fact, it's, it's a double um, commemoration, celebration that defines the, the modern idea of Dutch identity. There's the 4th of May and then there's the 5th of May. The 4th was the, is the day that the, the dead are remembered. The war dead, the 5th, is the, way, the day of liberation. Um, and again, a great deal of self-righteousness. Uh, in our childhoods, I remember, um, people sort of told proud stories of um, sending German, hapless German tourists the wrong way or um, shouting at them for not uh, observing the two minutes of silence that they didn't know anything about and so on. Um, but the 5th of May uh, is when the Netherlands were liberated by Canadian, British, Polish and American troops. It's slightly unusual, I think, for a nation to identify itself so strongly with an event in which it took so little active part. This, too, is an example of modern identity politics. Collective suffering under the Germans is the main constitutive memory that now shapes the nation. This, too, is something I find hard to endorse. Wars of liberation from Western colonial rule have been a bloody staple of post-World War II history. Third world liberation was one of the popular causes of the post-war left in Europe. This explains the widespread support among European students and intellectuals for Ho Chi Minh, Fidel Castro, Chairman Mao, and even here and there for Ayatollah Khomeini and Pol Pot. The fact that none of these third world leaders were Democrats, and at least a few of them were mass murderers, made little difference. They stood for national independence, and this was pretty much equated with freedom, freedom that is, from foreign rule. Isaiah Berlin, in his Two Concepts of Liberty, pointed out that this was not really liberty at all. But there's some ambivalence, I think, in his essay, reflective perhaps of his several loyalties, which weren't necessarily conflicting loyalties, but the, there were several of them, uh, to an idea of England, an idea of Russia, and an idea of the Jewish state. He argued that people should be free to define themselves not just as individuals, but collectively as well. And I think here his emotional uh, tie uh, to the state of Israel certainly played a role. It, it, as he always put it, it was the one country where Jews could live without feeling self-conscious, where I think, as he described on, after his first visit there, that even the customs officials and the policemen are Jewish. So you never have to sort of feel that you have to look over your shoulder. But he realized that this positive freedom could easily lend itself to abuse, indeed to a justification of despotism. Even in cases where foreign rule was more liberal 
and enlightened than the domestic rule that followed, third world dictatorships still commanded support for nothing was deemed to be more oppressive and humiliating than alien domination. This is not some primitive third world perversion. Dutch hostility to French rule followed exactly the same principle, even though the kingdom of the Netherlands that emerged from Napoleon's defeat was not a dictatorship but a relatively benign authoritarian monarchy. On the whole, people don't enjoy being dominated by foreigners, even if those foreigners promise liberation. Napoleon's conquest of European lands introduced a civil code as well as many liberties in the name of equal citizenship. But still, Germans and other peoples rebelled. And that rebellion, of course, uh, was the source of many illiberal ideas uh, abhorred by all Berliners. By the same token, Robert Mugabe, among many other former freedom fighters, continues to get respect from many Africans, though perhaps not so many in his own country anymore, even though he has wrecked the country he supposedly liberated from foreign rule. I think the reason why Isaiah Berlin was more interested in communism than in fascism or Nazism was not because he ducked a history that was too painful for him, which is some people have, have thought. Rather, it was because communism was responsible for terrible things perpetrated in the name of good causes, This cannot be said for Hitler's or even Mussolini's policies. Liberation was the stated aim of the Soviet Empire. Liberation from fascism, capitalist inequality, and imperialism. Indeed, its anti-fascist credentials gave communism an air of respectability long after the horrible consequences of Soviet or Maoist rule should have been apparent to everyone who bothered to follow the news. But this, in a way, is less interesting than the use of liberation in U.S. foreign enterprises, since the communist version is patently false, whereas the American aspiration to bring freedom to the world is often false, but not always patently so. And many Americans genuinely do believe in it. It's easy to mobilize Americans, I think, around uh, a cause or a war that's fought uh, to liberate people, um, even if... Uh, the war may be fought for very different reasons. Henry Kissinger may be a cynic uh, and somebody who deplores uh, that idealistic streak in American foreign policy, but to most Americans, the mission to spread freedom is not a cynical matter. The most famous or notorious expression of this mission, backed if necessary by military force, um, was the essay on Manifest Destiny, the title of it, written in 1845 to promote the annexation of Texas and later the expansion further west. The author of this essay, John L. O. Sullivan, was not some bellicose right-winger, but a progressive liberal who fought for the abolition of the death penalty, for the rights of women and workers, and who believed in democracy for all. Well, not quite for all. Like many Southern Democrats at the time, he drew the line at slavery. Although not insensitive to the plight of slaves, he was not in favor of abolition. But on the moves into Texas and beyond, he wrote, and I quote, And that claim is by the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent which providence has given us 
for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government entrusted to us. Now, many uh, neocons in our own time have not, they don't quote John L. O'Sullivan very often because Manifest Destiny does not sound too good even in our times. But they do like to quote uh, Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address uh, and assume uh, that uh, the American mission to spread liberty uh, really did uh, involve um, the rest of the world. In other words, that if you follow the logic of Lincoln's uh, freedom-loving mission, um, you can uh, argue straightforwardly for the invasion of places like Iraq, whereas actually that's never what Lincoln meant, or certainly there's very little proof that that's what he, ever, what, what he meant. Like O'Sullivan, he meant the American continent, and as a shining beacon on the hill, uh, the freedom of the United States could serve as an example to the rest of the world, but does not necessarily um, justify the use of force uh, to promote it. The war against the Spanish Empire in 1898 was a war ostensibly fought for the freedom of the peoples in Cuba and the Philippines. But President McKinley quickly decided um, after the Americans um, um, invaded the Philippines and got rid of the Spanish, decided that the Filipinos were not yet ready to govern themselves. They had to be educated first and converted to the Christian faith. The president, clearly unaware that this conversion had already taken place under the Spaniards, took the advice of Rudyard Kipling, who wrote The White Man's Burden specifically to encourage American rule in Asia. Kipling, too, believed in caution, where it came to the freedom of the new court, the quote, new court, sullen peoples, uh, half devil and half child. Take up the white man's burden, ye dare not stoop to less, nor call too loud on freedom to cloak your weariness. Kipling's words, of course. And so on to the great war in Europe, the wars in Korea and Vietnam, and today in Iraq and Afghanistan. Freedom was a major part of the justification for all these interventions. Freedom from the Prussian jackboot, from Hitler, from communism, and the, bit, the Muslim despot. The war in Iraq was promoted by influential neocon intellectuals as a revolutionary war to liberate Iraqis and established a democracy in Baghdad, and by extension in the rest of the Middle East. It is at least possible that a democracy will eventually take root in Iraq. One can't totally discount it. And an open and peaceful society flourish. But the price has been enormous already, and mass suffering is something no country has the right to inflict on others, even in the cause of freedom. And I would add to that that, of course, uh, the war was not only um, justified by uh, the mission to spread democracy and freedom. It was largely justified by claims that uh, very soon Saddam Hussein would be um, threatening the world uh, with uh, nuclear arms and other weapons of mass destruction. My own um, opposition to the war was based on something slightly different. It was because from the beginning I felt that a democracy could not afford to go to war to declare war um, for reasons that were unclear. If you cannot tell your own um, population, your own citizens, what, exactly why you're going to war without shifting from day to day and week to week, you do damage to the democracy um, as well as 
um, causing all kinds of damage to other people in the course of it. This kind of liberation by military or revolutionary force is, however, only one kind of freedom. I'd like to say more about the unintended consequences of war. All wars stir things up, socially, politically, and culturally. But chaos and destruction can create new opportunities too. Class distinction, for example, often gets dissolved or at least diluted in the mess of war. People of all classes get thrown together in trenches, POW camps, and so forth. To be sure, some people cling to them for dear life, especially in dire circumstances. Some cultures are more tenacious in this respect, clinging on to class distinctions, than others. In what is perhaps his only memorable book, James Clavell, an Australian by birth, described conditions in Changi prison, the Japanese uh, prison in uh, Singapore, where he was himself interned. Money made at gambling or black marketeering determined the American pecking order in the camp, whereas rank still counted more for the Brits. But only up to a point. Nicholas Spice recently quoted the 1950, in the LRB the 1954 trial against Lord Montague of Bewley for homosexuality. One of his co-defendants, Peter Wildblood, was taken to task by the prosecution not only for committing beastliness, but beastliness with social inferiors, which may be worse. Wildblood, to his great credit, answered, quote, that nobody ever flung it at me during the war that I was associating with people who were infinitely my social inferiors. End of quote. Things reverted to normal after the war, but only again up to a point. Having risked their lives for king and country, having lost their homes in the Blitz, having put up with hunger and deprivation, the working class was no longer quite so willing to go back into its box. Churchill's election defeat in 1945 to Clement Attlee was a direct result of this. Without the war, no beverage report. The welfare state was actually conceived during the war, when socialist cabinet ministers served in the national government. Beveridge's ideas for a better post-war society, where the five giant evils, as they were called, of want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness would be abolished, were first published in 1942, the birth of a new kind of intelligentsia in arts and letters, educated in grammar schools and red brick universities, surely was hastened by the social turmoil of war as well. The status of women, too, was no longer the same after working in factories, serving in the armed forces, handling administration in the forced absence of men. All day long, quote, whether rain or shine, she was part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie the Riveter. By 1944, there were 20 million Rosie the Riveters working in the U.S., 57% more than in 1940. Many of them, too, refused to return to their domestic boxes. Economic independence from men, though far from universally achieved in 1945, was at least a real possibility, not only in the U.S., but everywhere where women had to be mobilized to keep the war going. Some of the women who entered the workforce in wartime America were black. True emancipation, even by law, was still a long way off, 
But like the British workers, black Americans had tasted responsibility and rights had to follow. In 1945, the U.S. Army appointed a board to devise a new policy on African Americans. In 1946, it concluded that the armed forces should, quote, eliminate at the, very, at the earliest practicable moment any special consideration based on race. End of quote. In 1948, President Truman decided to end segregation in the armed forces through administrative action. The government, in his words, had an obligation to see that civil rights of every citizen are fully and equally protected. Again, I would argue something that may not have come quite so soon if it hadn't been for what happened uh, during World War II. Far trickier and far from intended, by men at least, were the sexual consequences of war. Military defeat is above all a male humiliation. Vichy France under a reactionary and authoritarian old war hero, was meant to serve as a national face-saving device. But the morale of French men could hardly have been lower after the German panzers had rolled over a supine France, rather like a rapist over his female victim. Conquering, rampant conquering armies have a dangerous sexual glamour, however. No doubt, many women who engaged in what the French call collaboration horizontale did so out of opportunism. Good food, or at least better food, alluring nightlife, the chance to lord it over others, often their social betters. Some did it because they had no choice to feed their children or save friends and relatives. Others genuinely fell in love. But for many thousands, it was a war of liberation from oppressive families, um, a form of, sorry, a form of liberation from oppressive families, bad marriages, autocratic fathers, or simply the loneliness of sexual starvation. It has been argued recently in an extraordinary account of those years, entitled 40-45, Les Années Érotiques, that the violence meted out to many of these women after the German defeat was not just punishment for collaboration with the enemy, it was the revenge by men on women who had run out of male control, a way to push them back into their boxes. This would seem to be borne out by the resentment felt by men even towards troops of allied nations, uh, overpaid, oversexed, and over here. It is not hard to imagine how undernourished, poor, exhausted Dutchmen felt when well-fed, cash-rich Canadian soldiers in snappy uniforms and shiny boots took their adoring Dutch girlfriends to dance halls that were barred to the native males. And there were indeed, this is the kind of history that was not mentioned when I went to school, there were indeed riots um, by Dutch men against uh, Allied troops for the, this very reason. And of course, this kind of thing cuts very deep. But to judge by the large number of half-Canadian babies born in 1946, women had a feast. And so it was all over Europe. One only need, needs to read Quizio Malaparte's The Skin, and Malaparte is not infallibly a, a, a totally reliable um, uh, chronicler of history, but he often manages to get at the uh, the attitude, if not always the facts. A huge bestseller just after the war, The Skin, uh, it was about the behavior of American troops in uh, Naples in 1943 and 1944. 
And you only need to read this to get the full rancid flavor of male humiliation and resentment when women run wild with powerful foreigners in uniforms, even if they're friendly uniforms. And in Italy, this was not always a clear-cut matter. One of the greatest unintended consequences of World War II was the swift road to independence of the European colonies in Asia. The Japanese war on Western imperial powers started with Pearl Harbor in 1941, but it was fought in the name of liberation, Asia for the Asians under one imperial Japanese roof. It is easy to dismiss wartime Japanese propaganda as nothing but a cynical ploy to replace Western empires with a Japanese one. And much of it was humbug, to be sure, but not all of it. A surprising number of Japanese took the goal of Asian liberation seriously, and independence fighters from Sukarno in Indonesia to Aung San in Burma collaborated with the Japanese military enterprise for that reason. Less well-known, um, but just as important, um, is the, f- the attitude of pan-Asianist uh, intellectuals uh, in Japan itself at the time. And there's a, an, an interesting parallel uh, with some of the neocons in our own time, that um, many um, intellectuals in Japan, many of them former Marxists or still Marxisan thinkers, uh, were behind the Japanese imperial enterprise precisely because they saw it as a, a war of liberation from selfish and wicked uh, um, capitalism, from sel- wicked uh, Western imperialism, and so on. Um, and so you had a similar phenomenon of people who were, um, from their studies, uh, urging government on to go to war for um, what were morally seen as perfectly good reasons, uh, but caused untold damage uh, as a consequence. It was under the Japanese rule that Indonesians set up an education system in the national language, Bahasa Indonesia. It was then that Batavia became Jakarta, and also then that Lee Kuan Yew uh, worked for the Japanese news service in Singapore, while Subhash Chandra Bose organized the Indian National Army to fight alongside the Japanese in Burma. Japanese rule broke the spell of Western power. Europeans no longer looked invincible in Asian eyes, and something that was deliberately um, uh, exploited by the Japanese uh, was not for nothing that um, among the the Western POWs was often the the tallest and strongest of men who got a lot of stick from Japanese guards, preferably in front of Malays or Indonesians or other native populations, simply to show uh, who was on top. And without the air of invincibility, it's impossible to rule hundreds of millions of people for very long. This alone had a profoundly liberating effect. So even after the Japanese were defeated, Asians were no longer happy to be put up with the humiliations of colonial rule. They, too, refused to crawl back into their boxes. This created a very peculiar situation in 1945 when remaining Japanese troops in Indonesia and Indochina had to be ordered by the Allies to protect European citizens against the more aggressive elements in the struggle for independence of their fellow Asians, independence that the Japanese themselves had encouraged. And, of course, this lasted until the Allied troops arrived in places like Indonesia, and the Allied troops included very many people from India, or the Indian subcontinent, who themselves 
might not have been averse to kicking the white man out. The Japanese defeat, like the collapse of Germany, could hardly be called liberation. The country was occupied, the cities and industries wrecked, the people hungry and destitute, and yet the American occupation of Japan, as was true of Germany, of course, was felt by many Japanese as a liberation. Militarist authoritarian rule ended, political prisoners were released, a new constitution written by keen American New Dealers gave women equal rights, including the right to vote, independent trade unions were established, and the oppressive emperor cult was broken. But above all, class distinctions were at least for some time blurred. Roughnecks who made money on the black markets married the daughters of grand families who had lost all their assets. Old industrial combines were dismantled, which opened up chances for enterprising upstarts, such as the Sony Corporation, for example, uh, to break into the front ranks of business. This would no longer be possible in in, uh, Japan today, which is much more rigid than it was in the late 1940s. An upstart would very quickly be squeezed out by older corporations who don't don't welcome uh, new competition. Japan has a democracy, flawed like most democracies, but a democracy nonetheless. Perhaps this would would have happened anyway. The rudiments were already there in the 1920s, something that's often misrepresented, uh, and I keep on banging home about the neocons, you have to forgive me, but one of the arguments made um, before the war in Iraq was that, after all, what we did for the Germans and the Japanese, we might just as well do for the Iraqis. It's often forgotten Um, that democratization in both Germany, or at least West Germany, and Japan um, was done by Germans and Japanese, and that both Germany and Japan had the the democratic institutions already before the war. They didn't work properly, but they were there. There was a free press, there were trade unions, there were political parties, and so on. But war and defeat, as well as U.S. occupation, driven at least in its early stages by Yankee idealism, certainly speeded the process up. Mainland Chinese like to call the communist takeover of government in 1949 liberation. It's called that officially. For most citizens of Chairman Mao's People's Republic, it was more like slavery. But Mao is still respected, even by people who suffered terribly under his misrule, because he liberated China from foreign powers. He united China as an independent nation. After a century of war and semi-colonial domination, this was no mean feat. But Mao was the first to admit that he would never have achieved this without the war with Japan. It was the Japanese who sapped the power of the old order, represented by Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, while the communists bided their time in the caves of rural Yan'an. This is not official communist Uh, view of things, of course, uh, but that's the way it was. When relations between China and Japan were normalized in 1972, Prime Minister Tanaka Kakue visited Mao in Beijing. And the first thing the old dictator did was to clasp Tanaka's hand in both his hands and thank his Japanese guest politely. Without the Japanese, he said, he would never have ruled China. What he politely failed to mention is that the war had cost up to 20 million Chinese deaths, but this was not the sort of thing that bothered Chairman Mao particularly. So liberation is a fine thing, 
especially when the liberation is real, as in women's suffrage, workers' rights, racial equality. But it would be even better if we didn't need wars to bring these benefits about. The price for unintended consequences is often too hard to bear, but then wars are often unintended too. Thank you very much. Thank you.